All right. So uh, when I prayed about what to preach on, uh, I thought, well, let's let's look at one of the pastoral epistles because, um, you know, there was a young preacher there who had not had a lot of experience preaching and there was a struggling church. And I said, hey, I bet this is going to be good for us. And so we started looking into it. And last week we found some stuff that was pretty hard and we had to think hard on. Well, guess what? It didn't let up this week. <laughs> we got some more of that to do. I'm going in- to give an introduction that is designed to sober us to the reality that we should do things the way God says, whether or not it sounds culturally sensitive, okay? So I'm going to start off by, by getting us in the, hopefully in the frame of mind to listen to God, regardless of whether it sounds politically correct to us. The most offensive thing, I think, that our society can find in Scripture today is the truth in Scripture that homosexuality is a sin. The second most offensive thing may be that men and women have different roles in the church and in the home. Um, CNN doesn't care what I say, but if they heard the sermon, they would call me all manner of names. You know, our society and the Word of God is diametrically, are diametrically opposed on things about gender and sexuality. Mark Dever is a Southern Baptist pastor that I respect, and at least one of our small groups has benefited from his teaching. I'm going to read you something that he wrote. He says, The most important revolution of the last century has been the sexual revolution. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. It was as if a license was given out, legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. Since that time, divorce, remarriage, abortion, premarital sex, and extramarital sex, as well as homosexuality, have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. Pornography is huge business. This is not just a problem with society out there. Many churches have found their members plagued by failed marriages and illicit affairs, by so-called private sins that turn into public disgraces, some of which are known, some of which are not yet known. All right, he's right. When we decide that we are far wiser than our Creator, when we decide that we have outgrown His limitations on us, then we are headed for disaster. Now you may say, well, but lost people are going to act like lost people. And that's true. Lost people fulfill their job description perfectly. The problem is that it's become normal for people in the church to act just like those outside the church. There should be a marked difference. If something was a sin a hundred years ago, it's a sin today, regardless of popular opinion on it. For a brief time in history, this country... Our society was somewhat in step with what the Bible defined as sin. Well, that ship has sailed. I know that if, uh, if you watch TV or read the paper or, you know, are alive today, you realize that that ship has sailed. Promiscuity and homosexuality are not only tolerated, but they're embraced to the point that if you and I don't embrace them, then we are ostracized, right? A very prominent pastor was asked recently, If homosexuality is a sin, his answer was, who am I to judge? Now, nobody's going to ask me for a newspaper article, but if they did, 
I would say yes. And if they said, who are you to judge? I would say, I don't have any personal moral authority. I'm a sinner too. So me saying that one that somebody else is a sinner is like a skunk walking up to another skunk and telling him he smells bad, right? <laughs> I'm a sinner, they're a sinner, who am I to judge? Who I am to judge is somebody that can read the revelation of God because God has every right to tell us, right? So I would say yes, but I would say only because I can read it from Scripture. Now here in the South, congregations will usually get on board when we talk about homosexuality being a sin. The problem is that when you talk about premarital sex being a sin, there's a little less enthusiasm because we think, well, but we can understand that one, uh, you know, and, and maybe we're guilty of that one, and so there's a little less fervor to think of that sin as being a sin. Sin is just as rotten to God, whether we like it or whether we don't like it. God hates all sin, and we need to, too. We need to develop that hatred for sin that the Lord has. Let me give you one more quote, this time from John Piper. He says, Confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among all gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. Now again, all this is to say we are going to read some things today that are not politically correct. It's okay. We need to be God-focused, spirit-minded, rather than conformed to the world. Last week we talked about some stuff that may have seemed uh, sort of counterintuitive to some of us. When that happens, if the word, if the word has been faithfully preached, then we need to conform to the word, not try to make the word conform to us, right? Our passage for today is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Please read along with me. If you have your Bible, uh, you can feel free to read there. Otherwise, it will be on the board. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and golds or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and, Adam, and, and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right. If some of you are going, what? Uh, yes, I understand. That's a very difficult passage, specifically the stuff about being saved through childbearing, right? Um, I'll do my best to help us make sense of that. But we're going to have to think hard again this week. This is the second week in a row I've asked you to do that, but that's okay. Christians are never called to check their brains at the door, but rather to engage their brains fully in the pursuit of understanding the Word of God. The first thing I want us to see is that we are to pray with a clear conscience. Verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now let me address first one thing and get it out of the way. 
Verse 8 says that men should pray, and verse 12 says that women should remain quiet. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, that settles it, right? We don't need to have women praying in church. Well, no, it doesn't really settle it. And the reason is there are two things that we have to look at. One, in any passage of Scripture, you need to look at the immediate context to see what it's talking about. And then you need to look at the broader context of the rest of Scripture to make sure that you understand it properly. The context of verse 12 is the teaching and authority that God reserves for the elder or for the pastor. And guys, I'm going to use these words interchangeably, and I don't mean anything significant by it. Uh, The Bible calls a pastor an elder frequently and calls an elder a pastor sometimes. You know, so it's the same word, and don't. Don't worry about what I call it. It just means pastor. We looked at context. Now let's look about the rest of Scripture, okay? So immediately it's talking about Paul is writing to a pastor, and he's saying, look, I don't give women the right to, uh, to teach or to lead in that capacity. And then if you look at the rest of Scripture, if women were not allowed to pray publicly, then Paul wouldn't have given them instructions on how to pray publicly in 1 Corinthians 11, right? We looked at 1 Corinthians 11 not too many weeks ago. And so we remember that Paul says, hey, when you pray or prophesy, do it this way, with your head covered, right? Remember that? So Paul is not going to say, here's how you pray publicly, but don't pray publicly, right? So we have to look at the rest of Scripture to see that. Let's get back to the point of verse 8 here. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The point is that we are to have a clear conscience before God. This means that there needs to be no unrepented of sin. You hear me talk about that every week. Uh, A lifestyle of repentance is what the Christian faith is. We are not to repent quarterly when we do the Lord's Supper. We are to repent daily, hourly, Whenever we have transgressed and we understand that we have and the Spirit reveals to us that there's a problem, that moment is the time that we need to repent. So repentance is a lifestyle, not something that we save up for an occasion. When we pray, pray, do so without mocking God by holding on to sin that you know you should repent of, but that you are unwilling to do so. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be perfect. If you had to be perfect, none of us would be praying this morning, right? I wouldn't get up and pray. Uh, Nobody else would have the nerve to get up and pray. So I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. I'm just saying that there can't be sin that you say, hey, I prefer this over my relationship with God, so I'm going to hang on to it. I know I should repent of it. I'm not going to. If that's the case, change your mind, repent, and then pray. On the other hand, do repent with sincerity and pure intent. I mean, we can't just say, hey, I've done this sin that I've done 8,003 times, but let me repent of it real quick. I'll say, God, I'm sorry, and then I can be blessed and not worry about it. But I know I'm going to do it again this afternoon, okay? (laughs) We need to repent genuinely and sincerely when we do repent. So we are to have a clear conscience before God when we pray. But we're also to have a clear conscience before other people when we pray. In Matthew 5, 21 through 24, Jesus tells us, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So when we pray, when we do acts of service, when we give to the Lord, when we sing praise to him, when we do those things, we should do so with a clear conscience before God and a clear conscience before other people. Don't you want God to listen to and answer your prayers? I do. God is too wise to give his power and authority to rebels. So when we pray, lift to God holy hands without anger or quarreling. Speaking of lifting hands, this is just a little aside, but guys, the uh, biblical model for prayer is not only with your eyes closed and your head bowed. (laughs) You can look up, you can lift your hands. It doesn't matter your physical position so much as the attitude with which you approach prayer. All right, our second point is that women should not distract attention from God and place it on them. Verses 9 and 10 talk about this. Now, obviously, men shouldn't do that either, but this is addressed to the much fairer sex, okay? Likewise, in verse 9, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, women, you are prettier than men are, And we are more easily distracted than you are. So when you combine these two facts, um, that's why Paul is addressing you and saying that you are not to take attention that is intended for God and bring it on yourself by the way that you dress. I won't dwell on this because I I really don't think this is an issue in our church. But let me say the point is that you dress modestly. Okay. Now you may say, man, I've got some gold on and I've got some pearls on. Okay, but in that time and in that context, they were, if they dressed like that, they were dressing like one of the prostitutes. Okay, so we don't want you to dress like a prostitute and come to church. All right, that's, that's obvious. Also, ladies, you're not to wear clothes that clearly show a drastic economic separation from the rest of us. You're not supposed to draw attention to your wealth by the things that you wear. That's why he says costly apparel, right? So we get this, uh, and at the moment I don't see that we have any issue here in our church. So let's move on to our third point. We spoke about the attire appropriate for godly women. Now let's look at the fact that men and women have distinct roles in the church. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, if the Bible says this in black and white... Why don't Christians submit to it? Well, some don't because they simply don't like it and they think it's out of step and they choose not to. Others, though, think that this was written because of cultural considerations rather than an eternal prohibition. I disagree that it's cultural rather than eternal, and I'll tell you why. 
Paul immediately associates these prohibitions with the unchanging creation narrative, okay? So I know a minute ago I said, I think the dress is cultural, and I think this is eternal. And you may be saying, oh, you just get to pick whatever you want, right? <laughs> well, no, that's not, that's not it. The reason is, one, is talking about the concept of modesty, right? And the concept of not drawing attention to yourself. And the other one he takes and applies directly back to the creation narrative. Now, by the way, Paul is not saying that, hey, women screwed this thing up and men are blameless. Because in Romans, if you read, it says sin entered into the world by one man. (laughs) Okay? And so Paul is not saying that the fall is just Eve's fault. He squarely places the blame on Adam other places. If he said that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man because it would be unseemly in the culture, then we could say that the instruction was temporary and it was cultural. If he had not given any reason, then we could speculate that it might be cultural, but we would never know for sure. As it is, though, we can be sure that it's based on eternal eternal principles because Paul explicitly tells us that in the following verses. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Is this saying that women have less sense and are generally more gullible than men are? (laughs) I really don't think so. He is saying that there is an order established in creation. And when it is not observed and obeyed, we find trouble. Paul is pointing back to when Satan intentionally went around the man to the woman rather than going in the proper order. And he was able to wreak havoc there. At the same time that Satan did this, the man failed miserably in his job to lead the family and protect the wife. The result of this was disastrous. I think that we should obey scripture whether it strikes us as politically correct or not. And I hope you do too. I like women. I especially like the women that live in the house with me. They are all very intelligent and very biblically literate. More biblically literate than most people that I know. Nevertheless, I will never ask one of them to fill in for me if I am unable to preach. Why not? It's not because they aren't smart enough, I guarantee. It's not because they don't know how to think in an organized fashion and, and present scripture. It's not that either. It is simply... Because God said it right here. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach. This requires some thinking in light of other scriptures, okay? I believe that this prohibition is in regard to teaching the gathered body on an occasion such as this right here. Rather than teaching all the time, and here's why that I don't think it's a prohibition against women teaching all the time. Women are commanded to teach in some contexts. Look with me on the board at Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women are commanded to teach younger women. Uh, What are some other contexts that women are used instrumentally to teach? We talked about some in Sunday school. Timothy received instruction from his mother and grandmother, as I guess everybody read today in Sunday school. 
it was a tremendous benefit to Timothy. But through that, it was a tremendous benefit to me and to the entire church that they faithfully taught their son and grandson the faith from his childhood. All right, let's consider this. Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, both discipled Apollos. In Acts 18, 24 to 28, which again was in our Sunday school stuff this morning, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, were, who through grace had believed. So he became a very influential, good, benefit to the church, teacher in the church. And he was discipled by this man and woman, Priscilla and Aquila. It says, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now they both discipled him for the glory of God and the benefit of the church. Now Priscilla had enough sense not to get into a discipleship relationship with a man when she was married to another man, right? So she and her husband discipled this guy. Clearly women who are knowledgeable and gifted to teach should do so, just not in a role that God, for whatever reason, he wants to, limits to men. Verse 12 of our text also says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What I want you to see is that women are not to teach in the context of an elder or a pastor, and likewise are not to hold that position of authority. To have women serving on our ministry advisory team, is that unbiblical? I don't think that it is unbiblical. When women and men, for that matter, submit themselves to the elder or pastor, I believe that they have an incredibly important perspectives to add to the overall understanding and benefit of the church. Uh, You know that a a year or so ago, um, there was exposed in this Houston paper a lot of sexual abuse that had occurred in the Southern Baptist Church. I would guess that that would have been greatly minimized had there been some more women's voices in power in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, We, in West Laurel, want to make sure that we have the perspective and the wisdom of godly women, which I do not believe is prohibited in Scripture. Hopefully what we've done is employed wisdom within the boundaries of what the Bible permits. If the church had sidelined Lottie Moon or Elizabeth Elliot or Kay Arthur, it would have been to our detriment. Now, um, if I'm going to get in trouble today, I'm going to get in trouble here. What about Beth Moore? Um, I don't know. I've not read a bunch of her books, so I am not an authority on Beth Moore. It does concern me a little when she says, when she puts on Twitter, I'll be preaching next Sunday morning at so-and-so church. Um, To me, that seems like she is functioning in one of the roles reserved for an elder. Uh, She does hang out with some prosperity preachers sometimes, which in my mind kind of gives credibility to them, and that, again, is concerning to me. Um, 
Catherine and I watched a clip where she was talking about how she, God told her to brush some dude's hair. And uh, she said, I thought God was going to tell me to witness to him. But no, he told me to brush the guy's hair. And I said, well, God, shouldn't I witness to him? And he said, no, don't witness to him. Brush his hair. So this is odd to me because the scripture does say that we're to witness to people. It doesn't say that we're to brush folks' hair. So um, I'm, not, I'm not hating on Beth Moore. If you find her beneficial, that's good. I just want to warn you that there's some weird stuff there. And so use wisdom and, and discernment. Jen Wilkins uh, is a contemporary writer of women's uh, Bible studies that is really, really good. So you can find really good stuff out there that is not just uh, Beth Moore if you're looking for it. The point is that the office and the function of an elder and a pastor are reserved for men. Why? Because the scripture says so. If you don't like that, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just the messenger, right? <laughs> so I think what we need to do is try to understand it and then obey it. So what do we make of verse 15? Um, let me tell you, I'm truly not sure. This is one of the strangest verses in all of scripture. I'll give you a couple of educated guesses and uh, let you struggle with it. Now, what does verse 15 say? Let me put it up here. Let me read it, I mean. Verse 15 is that one talking about being saved through childbearing. Yet she will be saved, and this is talking about, this. he was just talking about Adam and Eve, right? He said Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul may be talking about our receiving salvation through the offspring of Eve. That is my best guess. Because he has just mentioned Adam and Eve and just mentioned the fall. And then he says, but she will be saved through childbearing. So I, my, my best guess and, and what some commentators also agree with me is that he is talking about receiving salvation through the offspring of Eve. Now he just threw women under the bus for Eve eating the first fruit, right? I mean, he, he threw her under the bus there. And he may be saying that in spite of that, the promise remains that the Savior will come from a woman. Last week we saw that there was one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He was born of an earthly mother, but not an earthly father, right? Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He, this is God talking to Satan. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is true that some roles are reserved for men, but one of the greatest and most honorable roles ever given to any human was the role given to Mary. I told you earlier that I like women. So does God. Uh, men and women are both created in the image of God. We are created with equal dignity and equal worth, but we're given different roles in the home and in the church. Our greatest model for this is the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is God, fully God. They are one in essence, but they function in perfect harmony in distinct roles from one another. In a perfect world, that is how we would function 
men and women in the church and men and women in the home. But back on point, maybe this verse is talking about salvation coming through Eve or Eve's descendant Mary. Okay, I hope you're with me there. It's kind of weird, but it's, the best, it's my best guess. It's also possible that Paul is talking about the significance of women nurturing children. And he's saying that, guys, the way for us to be what we're supposed to be in God is that men do what God's called men to do and that women do what God has called women to do instead of trying to blur the lines and men acting like women and women acting like men. Women are uniquely qualified to bear children. As much as our society hates it, it still takes a man and a woman in some part of the process to have a baby. Uh, now, we may, we may alter that with cloning, but I hope not. I hope that God will limit our depravity before that happens. But as you might possibly recall in our introduction to this book several weeks ago, false teachers in this church were teaching against Christian marriage. And we'll see that eventually when we get to it. Paul may be saying that God has created women uniquely and that their roles in the home and in the church are God-given and entirely good. Instead of men and women being upset about their limitations, what we need to do is embrace our roles and fulfill those in a godly manner. One thing we know for sure is that women are saved by repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus Christ, right? Otherwise, Paul would have said, uh, you know, he urged some women to remain single in 1 Corinthians 7. But instead, if, if women were saved through childbearing, he would have said, get married and have kids as soon as possible or you may go to hell. Right. So that's obviously not what is meant by this passage. Men and women are saved through repentance and placing their faith in Christ. I don't know which of these possible explanations that I offered Paul had in mind. There may be another one that he had in mind. We'll ask him someday. But I think both of these are, are biblically reasonable. So what is the application? You may be saying, man, this, this was a weird passage, and uh, I'm a little confused, and what's the point? Okay, here's the point. Men be men, serve in the church for the glory of God, in whatever role God has given you. Women, be women. Serve in the church in whatever role God has given you. Um, women are so much better at being women than I am, and I, I'm glad. <laughs> and I'm, I, I want you to do your job well. Men are better at being men, and we're, well, most of us, we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to do what God has for us to do. So, the more crazily confused that our society gets to where we don't know which bathroom to use because we don't know what to call a man or a woman. I mean, that's pathetic, right? A hundred years ago, people couldn't have conceived that we would be discussing this. Fifty years ago, I dare say 25 years ago, people couldn't have fathomed that we'd be in this strange and confused position. So we in the church need to make sure that we hang on to sanity by hanging on to the Word of God. Now, there was a lot of talk at last year's Southern Baptist Convention. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the ladies, uh, the wife of the Bellevue Baptist pastor, Steve Gaines, and I can't think of her first name right now. But anyway, she was asked, would you vote for, or could Beth Moore be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention? And she said, well, I guess, because the Southern Baptist Convention is not a church. 
And so I suppose she could be president. But then she went on to say, I wouldn't vote for her because I feel like the guy who is president, the person who's president of the Southern Baptist Convention should be a pastor. And I believe she's not qualified to be a pastor. So we just need to hang on to sanity there. Um, Again, Beth Moore may be beneficial. This sermon isn't about her. I'm just saying people who overstep their bounds, we should watch for them. And, and we should try to encourage them to uh, do everything that they are asked to do and free to do within the church. But if it comes to somebody wanting to take a role that is not proper for them, uh, we, need to, we need to not fall for it. Um, now, again, if it were a matter of intelligence or capability, um, women could function as pastors. It's not that. It's the prohibition of God. Do I understand every reason for it? No, I don't. But I can read the word, and I think I can understand what was being said. So all that to say, let's uh, stay in our lane. Let's read the word so we'll know what our lane is. And then let's serve to the fullest capacity that we can in the church. Now you see why I go through a book verse by verse. Because if I didn't, I would have skipped today. Right, I would have skipped especially verse 15. Uh, But that's the benefit of going through Scripture so that we get all of it and we try to understand everything it says. Now we're going to stand in a moment and we're going to sing. And if you're here today and you say, well, I want to join this church, which may not be any visitors wanting to join today. But if you say, I want to join this church, or if you say, I've got something I want you to pray about, or if you say, I'm not entirely sure that I'm saved and I want to have a conversation about that, then you are invited to come and speak with me. What are we singing, brother?